This episode of Taking Up Space is sponsored by Jackson's Ice Cream. Swing down to Jackson's Ice Cream at Fisherman's Wharf, open every day from 11 till dark. Walk the docks and enjoy scooped ice cream cones, soft serve sundaes, and milkshakes along the sunny harbor. Check them out on Instagram at Jackson's Ice Cream. What are you? I am the hormone monstrous. We all get overwhelmed by our hormone monster from time to time. The hormones in this house are going bananas cream pudding. Whether it's acne or mood swings, body odor or weight gain, the negative effects that hormones like estrogen and testosterone have on our human bodies are a pain. So hormonal changes are most often associated with adolescence. Um, they're the butt of jokes and the cause of stress and bullying. But the truth is, hormones affect people throughout their entire lives in many different ways, and they're often misunderstood. These are going to be the greatest years of your life. Now let's fling ourselves onto the bed and cry so hard no sound comes out. You're listening to Taking Up Space, CFUV 101.9 FM's intersectional feminist podcast. We're broadcasting from Victoria and the Songhees and Osanich territories of the Lekwungen and Senchothan speaking people. On this episode, we'll explore the different stages of life and the hormones that accompany them. We discuss the use of hormone blockers in puberty and how transgender youth can make important and beneficial decisions about their bodies. We also learn about how hormonal imbalances can have far-reaching impacts on reproductive health and body image. We think about the power of menstruation. Finally, we consider menopause from both a physical and emotional perspective. Through it all, we examine the healthcare system's preparedness for these extremely common and underexplored situations. Beyond the basic puberty hormones of estrogen and testosterone, the human body actually contains around 50 other hormones that perform different roles in our growth and health throughout our lives. They're neither positive nor negative, and there's no one solution to every challenge we might face. But it's interesting to talk about the unique ways that these chemicals interact with specific individuals. A lot of the time, simply talking about our symptoms and the ways we experience them and the changes our bodies go through can improve our health. We are on a mission to normalize the idea that people's bodies look and function differently. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Lux. I use them and they pronouns. Our interviewer, Charlotte, sat down with someone who could discuss everything relevant to transgender youth, from accessing hormone replacement therapy, also known as HRT in British Columbia, to resisting the gender binary. I work for an organization called TransCare BC, which is part of the Provincial Health Services Authority in British Columbia. The mandate of our organization is to decrease barriers for trans and gender diverse people in BC when it comes to accessing healthcare. And specifically for me, what that looks like is I work at the Victoria Youth Clinic at Victoria Foundry, uh, offering peer support counseling, systems navigation, and medical advocacy for two-spirit trans and gender diverse youth, 12 to 24. And then I also work at some youth drop-in programming throughout the city for LGBTQ2 plus <laughs> teenagers. A lot of what I do is um, meeting with young people, talking about the physical outcomes of HRT, the processes in place to get started on HRT, what kind of goals they have, what sort of things they're excited about, and then also reviewing, I guess, the 
meat and potatoes of the process. So when they go into it, they're not feeling super blindsided by questions or, you know, they're just prepped. So for someone interested in starting hormone replacement therapy in BC, what are the first steps? We asked Lux to walk us through it. Uh, We go through a process that's based on informed consent. So for most people, depending on the availability and accessibility of care and providers who can offer these services, um, usually you're looking at anywhere from three to six meetings with either like a doctor, just primary health care, family doctor, or um, certain mental health professionals can do hormone readiness assessments. So like Um, like counselors or psychiatrists, I believe some nurse practitioners as well. And basically what it is, is the process is designed to assess your readiness for hormones. I think if you are about to begin a hormone readiness assessment, or if you're curious about it, some of the things that you could anticipate talking about would be um, the kind of supports you have available to you, like, you know, being trans can be weird and stressful sometimes. And especially in the early stages of physical transition when your hormones are kind of all over the place and you're adjusting your life in multiple ways. We just want to make sure that you're connected to support in some way. So um, I think you could anticipate being asked about, you know, if you have support from your family or friends or a partner, if you have counselors, just because we want to make sure that when or if people are starting hormones, it's something that is improving their life and is exciting. Then there are some physical screen questions about what kinds of supports you have, your decision-making process, and your health. So you can anticipate getting your blood taken, which is super fun for a lot of people. When we think about physical transition, there is a common narrative that you start hormones and take them for the rest of your life at the highest dose possible. And that's not really the best path for lots of people. So um, within the hormone readiness assessment process, um, you'd have an opportunity to talk about what would be the ideal physical outcomes for you. You know, some people go into the process wanting to only be on hormones for X amount of time or until their body develops to X stage. So there would be an opportunity to talk about that kind of stuff, um, which is really awesome too because I think the great thing about those changes is that they reflect a need for inclusivity for non-binary genders, um, people who don't want to, yeah, I guess to call back to the classical sense of hormones, like jump from quote-unquote one box to another. You know, there are a lot of options in place that are available to people, which is pretty cool. Being inclusive of folks whose trans experience is more ambiguous or non-binary is important to Lux. It's important to recognize that trans people exist on a spectrum of gender, not simply male or female. A common concern that I hear from people is... um, people who are non-binary or non-binary aligned, um, who might not want to, yeah, I guess like the the wording is clunky, but like transition fully, you know what I mean? Um, people who want to have a more of like an intermediary approach to transition or they only want to physically transition to a certain extent. I think lots of people who would be interested in pursuing something like that feel like it's not an option or feel like it's inaccessible. Um, so I do talk to lots of people who worry that they would they might have to conceal the fact that they're non-binary. They might have to lie about that in order to get access to hormones. And at least in BC, and at least if the service is being delivered to the standards of care, <laughs> that shouldn't be the case, which I think is really cool. Um, and I think it's also reflective of 
I think, the power of community to influence care. Accessing hormone therapy is not always easy and depends on where you live. The standards of care in BC are not consistent. Even within BC, you know, the, the kinds of care that you can access in Victoria versus the options that might be available to you if you're in Kitimat or Williams Lake are wildly different. Um, so when it comes to addressing misinformation that people have, what tends to come up most for me is people coming to the clinic with a preconceived notion of how difficult or arduous the process will be, or on the flip side, um, having an expectation that it will be maybe much faster than the reality. Um, so I think my biggest takeaway would be to encourage people to go out, find your information, do research, get connected to people, figure out what's happening for people um, wherever they are, but then also make sure that you're finding information that is relevant and specific to where you are. Here in Victoria, we're lucky to have some doctors who only take trans patients, and who work specifically with that community. In terms of coverage for these services, Lux says we do have pretty generous coverage in BC. I think if you're able to get in with certain service providers, it's definitely possible that the assessment process could be completely covered. Um, and then as well, um, a lot of gender-affirming surgeries are covered by an MSP as well. And then, of course, there's some inc incidental costs that come up. Um, but there's ways and there's techniques and there's backdoors. I mean, something that's pretty interesting in BC is that um, hormones can be covered by Plan G, mm -hmm. which is a provision in place to help people pay for psychiatric medication if they are unable to or if they're impacted by poverty. Um, I think a couple years ago, somebody made the incredible um, observation that access to hormones <laughs> is something that impacts people's mental health. So um, with, I can't remember the name of the actual document, but there's a provision, provisionary document that a doctor can provide that basically says um, that for your individual case, Plan G should extend coverage to hormones as well. On the spectrum of gender, not only do trans people exist inside and out of the gender binary, male and female, but there's also a lot of diversity between experiences of gender for trans men and women. Because of this, trans people often use the adjectives transmasculine and transfeminine to distinguish between different kinds of identities and medical options. Lux says there are huge differences in the coverage of medical procedures for transmasculine people versus transfeminine people. For transmasculine people, surgical options are more often covered by the province. So we're looking at things like um, bilateral mastectomy, chest contouring and masculinization, top surgery, quote-unquote, um, certain lower surgeries or um, hysterectomies, things like that. I think in BC it's really awesome that those procedures are covered. And then what we find is um, for people that are transfeminine, there tends to be a larger array of surgical options that trans feminine people could be or might be interested in. Um, things like facial feminization, um, <clears throat> things like vocal cord surgeries that are currently considered to be cosmetic or non-medical or what have you. Um, so those kinds of procedures are not covered. <clears throat> and then even when it comes to um, like breast augmentation, making your chest larger, more feminine, um, trans feminine people have to fulfill certain criteria in order to have those procedures covered for them. So you have to have um, like a huge disparity in growth between your breasts. Like we're talking about 
one being an A cup, one being like a D cup, um, or completely negligible growth. Um, so it seems as though that there are maybe a couple more hoops that trans feminine people have to jump through in order to get access to certain surgeries, um, which is something that obviously is impactful for me and um, something that I'm really interested to see where those conversations go because um, I think it relates to just misogyny in general, um, trans misogyny specifically, by saying that like these kinds of procedures because it's more about the outward appearance. It can be about like what, how your face looks or how your voice sounds. Um, I think that lots of people have a pretty dismissive regard for those kinds of things. But I think we also see that when trans women and trans feminine people have access to these surgeries, their health outcomes, their levels of safety, their levels of access to care and support tend to go way, way up. In addition to differences in medical coverage for gender-affirming surgeries, transmasculine folks are able to achieve more of the bodily changes that help them to appear more masculine by taking testosterone. But it doesn't work this way for trans-feminine people. Something Lux calls the divine prank. <laughs> uh, that's a little bit of my bitterness shining through. Um, something that's really interesting about hormones is that they can really create a lot of change, a lot of growth, a lot of development. So um, things that are really common for people taking testosterone to happen are like a deeper voice. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we find that people's the face structure can change. Maybe their jaw could get a little bit wider or more pronounced. Um, talking about things like um, like weight and muscle redistribution, um, growth of body hair, those kinds of things. Um, other changes in the below the belt region. <clears throat> and those are changes that are generative. Um, your body is growing and developing to accommodate those. Whereas um, for people who are trans feminine who might want to be taking estrogen. Um, oftentimes, those people have already gone through quote unquote male puberty. So they've already experienced a lot of that growth and a lot of that generation that trans masculine people take testosterone to achieve. And unfortunately, um, estrogen is not unable to, or <laughs> is not able to take those changes away. So it's, just, it's not analogous in that sense. It's not like you can take estrogen and your voice gets higher. So in addition to transmasculine and transfeminine identities, plenty of non-binary and genderqueer folks identify somewhere between or beyond the gender binary. And, and they can use hormone replacement therapy to achieve a more androgynous appearance if they like. It's also helpful to note that medical professionals and documents may sometimes use the terms MTF, male to female, and FTM, female to male, to describe trans women and trans men. Some trans people use these terms to describe their own identities. However, they can often be read as offensive when used by cisgender people because they reinforce the idea that gender is a choice, something that you can actively change male to female or and vice versa. While in reality, these people were women or men or non-binary all along. Lux says there are many ways for transgender youth to approach hormone therapy in their transition. One medical option for people who are prepubescent is called Luprolin also known under its brand name, Lupron. Basically what Lupron does, it's called a puberty blocker. So it stops your body from um, developing puberty of any kind. So um, in that sense, you kind of remain physically a child. Um, you know, we're talking about um, preventing your body from 
beginning menstruating or development of breast tissue or development of body hair, um, preventing your body from developing a lower voice. Um, so those are all really cool things and things that can reduce stress, reduce dysphoria for young people. And then there's some other considerations as well. Um, you know, there's some physical outcomes of puberty that aren't specific to your, your sex traits, your secondary sex traits. So Lupron, for a lot of people, can also prevent you from getting taller and, you know, like doing things that happen for lots of people during puberty. But I think something that I've noticed and something that I've heard discussed is that a more classical use of Lupron is sort of as like a stopgap or like a wait and see. Like there's this young person who's expressing that they might be trans because they're 9, 10, 11. We want to make sure, quote unquote, we want to make sure that this is a fully crystallized concept for this young person. We don't want to start them on hormones and potentially have them regretting it. All of these things. Um, so I think oftentimes when people use Lupron, it's to buy some time to allow the young person to really solidify their choices um, or at the very least be able to make a very informed decision. At the same time, Lux also sees lots of young people starting routine HRT in the same way that adults would. They think this represents... I, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but I think like a pretty cool cultural shift where parents are recognizing this capacity within their young kids to make an informed decision and trusting that their kids know themselves or at the very least saying that we're going to do this together as a family and no matter what happens we'll be supportive of you um, i think that's really cool as this conversation is somewhat new there are a lot of parental concerns in relation to giving young children hormone therapy Something that's really cool about Victoria is we have a group called Gender Spectacular, which is um, a drop-in sort of social program for trans and gender diverse kids, sort of like grade five, grade four, and younger. And it's really cool and really interesting to be in a room interacting with trans people who are sometimes like three or four, you know, who are already having these sort of like complex and nuanced thoughts about their gender. In my experience and in my observation, one of the conditions that's necessary for young kids like that to be able to express themselves in those ways is for parents to have some literacy or at the very least to look at what they're looking at and be like, what's going on here? Um, so I think we definitely are seeing more and more young people, like much younger people than ever before, having these kinds of conversations. And I think it's because parents have more access to these this kind of language. Regardless of where people are in their transition or their level of support, Lux recommends that people reach out to Transcare BC. And Lux notices a huge shift in folks when they get access to the support they need. There's a call-in line staffed Monday to Friday by nurses and health navigators who are there to answer questions for trans people who are trying to access healthcare, support services, and mental health resources. It's really interesting to look at how somebody's physical health and how their relationship with their body can have such a massive impact on their mental health. And it sounds so obvious to say, but watching people go from being like incredibly withdrawn, wearing layers and layers and layers of clothing, even though it's the summertime because they want to hide different parts of their body, um, 
kind of shrinking into the corner, hiding their voice because they don't want people to judge it, to then six months, nine months, two years later, being almost unrecognizable in terms of how confident they are or in terms of how charismatic they are, how much they're, even how much they're talking, you know, um, we, we get all of this information, we get all of this input that being trans can be scary and it can be dangerous and those things are true. And I think it's unfortunate that that tends to be all that we hear about being trans. Um, because I think what we find is that even though it can be scary or intimidating or it can be dangerous, it can also be so empowering and so amazing and so confidence boosting and so incredible in your self-esteem to finally be seen for who you are and to be able to walk through the world in a way that reflects your actual interior reality. And I just, I wish that there was more conversation about how exciting and how cool and how powerful it is to be trans. If you are between the ages of 12 and 24, you can connect with Lux through the Victoria Youth Clinic to receive peer support counseling. They are happy to speak to anybody's curiosities and concerns, ranging from introductory questions and actual procedural concerns to name changes and updating gender markers. If you fall outside of those age ranges, they encourage you to still get connected so that other resources can be provided. Lux's TransCare BC phone number is 1-866-999-1514. You can find them on Facebook at Lux Foundry, L-U-X Foundry. Or you can email them at lux.welsh at phsa.ca. For another perspective on how hormones can affect our bodies, we spoke with someone who has a hormone disorder that not a lot of people have heard about, but is actually very common. My name is Sarah Solomon. Sarah is the producer of Taking Up Space and has a syndrome called PCOS. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it is a very confusing syndrome. About uh, one in 10 women have it. Um, and it's basically a hormone disorder. Um, it's called polycystic ovarian syndrome, but you don't necessarily need cysts on your ovaries to have it. Um, there are around three main symptoms, I guess you could say, that if you have two out of three, you are diagnosed as having PCOS. So they are weight gain, um, weird patterns in your hair like you have a lot of excess facial hair or you're balding and then cysts on your ovaries um lucky for me i have all three <laughs> when she was younger she had one symptom in particular that stood out to her mom i'm half persian half portuguese so we're a very hairy people <laughs> so i already had a lot of body hair i think it was the body hair that my mom was like something's not right i had like no forehead whatsoever <laughs> like my eyebrows just went like straight across and straight up my mom was like like, let's go get you checked out. <laughs> uh, um, so I think that's what it was. It was just like, I just, I was at a, a very extreme end of the spectrum. And Sarah was bullied because of this when she was in school. I think the reason actually my mom took me to um, a doctor was because a boy in my school called me a gorilla, which is a get, running into racism a little bit. I mean, Victoria is a, 
is now a little bit more diverse but when i was younger it was definitely very like white centered and so having body hair was completely out of the norm um and then like 10 years later the same people who were um making comments about my body were coming up to me in the hallway and being like i love your eyebrows and i'm like what's going on (laughs) who flipped the switch nothing makes sense when i was 18 or 19 like it really drove me crazy you know because you see people with like a little bit of like leg hair peach fuzz and people are telling them like get rid of it like it's like the devil do you know what i mean so when you're growing a beard it's like where does that leave me i don't know (laughs) the hormones that are affected by pcos in the body are luteinizing hormone follicle stimulating hormone testosterone dheas prolactin androstenedione progesterone and estrogen you can go either way on the spectrum. So you can have like excess male hormones like testosterone, um, androgens, um, which is what I have, which is like you get very male characteristics of um, a lot of women go bald and then you grow a beard and then you get belly, which is um, what a lot of men get when they hit around 50. Um, or you can go the complete opposite way um, where you completely lose all of your hair. And there are a lot of women who are overweight with PCOS, but there are also some women who are underweight. So it's just kind of your body's really out of balance and um, there's really no cure for it yet. So it's mostly just, there's two um, kind of strategies doctors give you. One is birth control, which kind of uh, resets your hormone secretion or diet and exercise. The reason these two courses of action birth control and diet and exercise are recommended is that they both balance the body's hormone levels. For Sarah, diet and exercise is what works for her because weight loss scientifically reduces your symptoms because it 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 brings down your hormone levels. If you if you lose it the right way. So for me, it wasn't necessarily cardio like what I do um is high fat, which is um something that they prescribe if you go to certain types of doctors, high fat diet, I eat a lot of chocolate, which is, there's a lot of foods that that, um, I feel like God gave me. They're like, you know, you have a beard, but you can eat a lot of dark chocolate. Um, I don't do cardio. I take walks. All the work Sarah has put into figuring out how best to deal with the symptoms of PCOS have taught her valuable lessons about how to take care of herself. Like for me, if I was to do all of that crazy dieting, my body would be like, Mm-mm. like it, it would, it would um, push back against what I was doing because it wouldn't work internally. So at a very young age, I learned how to take care of my body based on the way that it feels and not necessarily the way that it looks. Like if I drink a lot of water and eat, you know, a balanced diet and and do moderate amounts of exercise, then I feel better. And I feel like that's something that in the future will pay off because that's something that everyone has to learn at a certain point that you can't really abuse your body. Um, And I feel like at PCOS, you start that very young as opposed to when you get to 40s and 50s. And then it's it's really frustrating because then you also go through menopause. And then it's like, there's no way to tame that. Focusing on her mental health and following her diet and exercise regimen is what worked for Sarah. I went to therapy. That's something that people don't tell you that this disorder this syndrome because it puts you under so much stress that that talking about it and kind of getting your your mental health right is a big way to reduce the weight yeah like i went to therapy i lost about 15 20 pounds without trying 
So I think that's something to be noted. But that's that's something that it isn't straightforward. So I feel like a lot of people wouldn't prescribe. But in her experience, using birth control is not as effective. One of the symptoms of PCOS, because your hormones are irregular, you don't menstruate as regularly um, as most people do. And, and if you're only having one or two periods per year, the danger is that the lining in the uterus can build up and over time these cells can turn abnormal and you can get um, ovarian cancer so i feel like that's why people are so quick to go on the pill but like me in my situation my periods weren't that irregular they were really painful um but they weren't so spread out that um i was a danger for that and so going on the pill really didn't make sense at the time because i wasn't really addressing what was wrong and all those symptoms even though they would have been alleviated would have come back when i was older when i decided to go off the pill you know if i wanted to go get pregnant um and especially when you're older it's even more difficult um, to have control over your body with the aging process um so that's why you know my mom made the decision to not let me go on the pill because as sarah said a lot of these symptoms you get are symptoms that women are told are not attractive like weight gain and facial hair Part of dealing with this syndrome for her has been about addressing self-esteem issues. PCOS has changed the way Sarah thinks about her self-image because she's learned to recognize that she can't always control everything about her body. Because I see a lot of girls my age, my friends, um, you know, little things drive them crazy and I can totally empathize with them because, you know, the media picks up on every little thing about women's bodies to hold against us. So, you know a small breakout or, you know, a little bit of leg hair. Like, I feel like that is the devil. Um, And it's interesting because I'm a big perfectionist. I'm a Virgo. (laughs) So I feel like if I didn't have this, I feel like my body image would be worse, which is a little bit weird to think about because I think that there is so much that's out of my control that you sort of have to let it go after a while. That you know it's never going to be perfect. But as long as I feel good and I can get on with my day, then it's fine. Learning to let go of societal expectations of how our body should look has been a big part of Sarah's experience with PCOS. At a certain point, like, because it was expensive, but also because it wasn't working, like, I stopped lasering my face. And, like, I don't, I don't personally like to let it grow out, but the idea that, that I never wanted anybody to see it because it was so embarrassing, after a certain point, you're like, it's fine. Like, it's just, like, it's just facial hair. It's, it's... It's a very small thing. It's it's not as big as when you're younger. And I feel like the more time goes on, the more you get used to it. You yeah. start questioning it. You're like, why am I freaking out over this very small issue? <laughs> and it's okay <laughs> if if it if it bugs people. Like yeah. I, like for a long time, it really screwed with me. But I think it's important to talk about because one in ten. That's so many women who have these symptoms. And I feel like it's such a shameful thing to you know to have body hair anywhere really on places that it's so normal to have body hair like there are some places that I still look at my body and I'm like come on like my collarbone like I'll get here there and I'm like you're not supposed to be there but in general it's like there's no shame in something that happens naturally and and when I was trying to lose weight I was so miserable because it wasn't happening and I was just focusing on the physical and I think the moment that I was like it's not going to change. I'm just in this in this weird place where I'm a little bit overweight, but it's fine. That's when I lost the weight, which is why it was so strange. Because I think when you stop fighting with your body, it's like it, it sort of works with you after a certain point. 
I think that's the most important thing for PCOS that I've learned is just like, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. This episode of Taking Up Space is sponsored by Jackson's Ice Cream. Swing down to Jackson's Ice Cream at Fisherman's Wharf. Open every day from 11 a.m. till dark. Walk the docks and enjoy scooped ice cream cones, soft serve sundaes, and milkshakes along the sunny harbor. Check them out on Instagram at Jackson's Ice Cream. Next, we have a cisgender woman whose already difficult relationship with hormones and her period were changed by ovarian cancer and a hysterectomy. Our interviewer, Katie, reached her over the phone. Hi there, Tasha speaking. Tasha is a mother of two kids, a visual artist, and former college and university instructor. I'm good, thank you. Sorry, I'm just still figuring out how the phone interview process works. She details her relationship with menstruation throughout her life. I um, really suffered um, pretty much for all the decades that I had menzies and my menstruation was like really, really, really hard on me. And I feel like those hormonal shifts that happened every month were also really hard on me in terms of um, like keeping a mental state that was stable and also just feeling a lot of emotional turmoil. So we're talking lots of blood, lots of cramps, and lots of crazy. And then um, in, I'm 57 now, so I, in my as an older woman, um, yeah, it even got tougher. Like as they start to change. Perimenopause often starts in a person's late 30s and 40s, when their ovaries begin to produce less estrogen. As she got into her late 40s and 50s. Tasha's menses got worse and worse, and then she got her diagnosis. I ended up having ovarian cancer, which could have been why my late perimenopause was so difficult, but I've heard it can be quite difficult for a lot of people, like you just bleed a lot more. So um, I had a hysterectomy, and yes, that was great. (laughs) That part of just removing everything and being done with menstruation completely and just that whole um, deal over, I can't tell you how much nicer that is. Not having her period anymore has been one of the most positive aspects of this whole experience for Tasha. You know, like I went through a really traumatic time with cancer and then doing chemotherapy, but the good part was having the hysterectomy in the sense of not having to deal with my period anymore. It was just such a huge fucking relief. And that, you know, it's freedom. I mean, I, I would really like to speak more um, positively about menstruation. I really wish I could. But really, my experience of menstruation, my whole life has sucked. So... It's hard, (laughs) except for the kids, you know. Yay, I had kids. I got pregnant. Being pregnant was pretty cool. When Tasha went through menopause, she wasn't expecting how difficult it would be. 
I sort of thought it would just dwindle off, right? Like, doesn't that sound like a nice thing to happen? But it, it's not like that. Like I said, you sometimes go, say, four months, six months, you don't have a period, and then suddenly you have, like, five periods in the next three months, you know, like one after the other type of thing. So it's it, it messes things up, but it doesn't dwindle off necessarily, depending on, you know, every person's different. But that was my experience of it, and I, I know other people go through that too, that as they get older sometimes the periods can be really longer and harder. Tasha elaborated on how her relationship with hormones has been shaped by the culture we live in. So I feel like if we were in a matriarchal culture, then we would have ways of looking after ourselves better so that our hormones and what is going on with our hormones would not be such a difficult thing to live with. Um, You know, and especially when I was a younger woman, um, there wasn't a lot of openness or any kind of, you know, support around dealing with being, well, being like, you know, dealing with mental health or spiritual health or even women's sexual health, really. So um, I feel like some things are changing, but we still have this context that's really difficult for us to like enjoy our hormones and I what I wanted to get to was that I do feel like I'm really lucky that I had kids. I had both my kids after the age of 40. And so my hormones, you know, I couldn't have done that without those dang hormones. So I feel grateful too um that I was able to conceive and have children. Despite her challenging experiences with hormones and with cancer, Tasha reflects positively on the effects of her emotions during those times. Even though I I really just like hated how um, difficult my emotions were, like PMSing and that kind of thing, but I always felt like actually they were truer emotions than how I was feeling the other times. Like it was like I was getting to deeper emotions. Totally. Does that make sense? Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I struggle because it's the days that I feel really emotional that I feel inspired I feel creative I feel empathetic and but it's the days yeah. that I am not emotional where I feel functional I feel capable yes. I feel interesting quote unquote, those words right like yeah yeah like how can empathy why are empathy and functional almost opposites almost Definitely. interesting yeah Our last guest on this episode spoke with us about her experience with menopause. She teaches computer science at Camosun College. Uh, my name is Shore, and um, I've been in Canada for uh, almost 40 years. I've spent most of my adult life in North America. Shore looks at menopause as a change rather than an ending. It's transitioning from one um, one phase to another. That's how I see it. I don't see it. I know some people look at it as an end. For me, that was not the case. It's more like I'm transitioning to to something else. Um, that's how I viewed puberty. 
that I was transitioning into something, so I'm viewing this the same way. This change began about four years ago. And then it hit. (laughs) Um, How did it hit? Like, how did you know you had started menopause? Um, Actually, now that you remind me, um, it's... I think it's quite, um, it's a moving target because you start to have changes in your mood, uh, changes in your sleep, changes in your skin, but it's very subtle uh, until you start, uh, you stop uh, the menstruation cycle. And then things start to sort of escalate more. I would say that actually has been the last 10 years. Okay. So it was quite a long time mm-hmm. where subtle changes came through. And I find that maybe that's even better because then you are dealing with it as a very gradual level rather than being one way and then being hit like a truck in another. Um, what I found most difficult was my emotional part. She noticed certain changes in how her body was feeling, like headaches and backaches. And any little thing would get me upset. And I went to the doctor, actually, and I said, I don't know what is wrong with me. I don't usually get headaches. I don't usually have backaches like this. And um, he was the one who told me, you probably are premenopausal. And so then I was aware, I started reading, I started to investigate what, uh, again, I think it's my scientific mind that, okay, what's coming up? I need to be prepared for it. I need to do my homework um, and go through it very, um, I think, systematically. I didn't want to be shocked. I don't like to be surprised. And I like, I think, because I like to be in control. <laughs> I like to be in control of the going through the journey. Yes, I go through the journey, but I like to be in control. Shori was candid about the bodily changes she experienced. And that led her to some questions about her value as a person and as a woman. Okay, I have to be honest <laughs> here. Um when they talk about everything goes south, everything goes south. All of a sudden, you start to put on weight, and you don't know, well, what is different? I, I'm not doing anything different. The same eating, having the same activity level, uh, but there are changes, right? Um, your skin starts to sort of become more dull. Your hair starts to thin, right? And... Um, and that affects your mood, right, as a woman. And uh, this feeling of, um, uh, are you still a viable human being? I think it starts to go, and you need to deal with it. Because you start to come out from the other end, and you come back, but you're different, It's the same thing as puberty. You know, when you go in, you're a very sort of awkward teenager and you come out into this womanhood. And this is the the other end of it, that you're going out, you don't have maybe the same um, feelings or 
sexual desires or um, the attractiveness that you usually feel, um, but it's not the end. It's just you're going through that motion, and if you go with it, I think, at least for me, it was better off to sort of go through it, accept it, because it hits you really hard. Despite her efforts to stay in control, going through menopause took an emotional toll on Shore. I'm a very logical person. At the same time, I'm very emotional. But I've always been at a very even level through my life. And this was the only time where I felt um, down, um, where I was out of control. I had feelings that I wasn't prepared for. And you need to have a a look at yourself. Um, I I, I used to say, I look in the mirror. I don't don't know who is looking at me. Um, Couldn't recognize the person. And that was, that's, that was the hardest part. Mm. Wow. Um, So it was kind of like getting the sudden, like, you know, mental health crisis that you had never experienced before. Yes. Yeah. And I've heard of other people that have gone through it and have had mental health challenges. And I think it's something that a lot of people are in denial. And I think it's good to talk about it. That, look, um, I think it's one of that uh, uh, pieces that you're going through this transition. There are chemical changes. There are physical changes. And so this is part of it. I think it's easier to cope rather than deny. Menopause affected Shore's relationships as well, particularly with her family. I remember actually hearing this comment that you're different. You're a lot more impatient. You're a lot more angry. And I was looking and thinking, well, I'm not. But when... Everybody tells you that. My children were telling me that. My partner was telling me that. Then you start to think, okay, maybe it is true, and I'm not seeing it. So uh, they were, but they were very understanding because when I came out and I said, look, I'm going through this, and I'm having a hard time, so bear with me, uh, be with me, and support me through this, um, then it was... Yeah, it was okay, but yeah, they de- de- definitely noticed a change in my moods, a change in my, uh, the way I am. Um, I was not as patient, and I'm a very patient person. Um, so yeah, they, and they, they pointed that out to me, which was a good thing. What Shore really needed from her family was understanding. It was not... Uh, you know, bring me flowers, you know, none of these, that doesn't help. Uh, It's that understanding that I get it. I know you're having a hard time, and that's okay. We go through it. And I think for me, that was a a, a ticket that, okay, they understand, and I'm in safe ground. Uh, Because that's terrifying, you know, um going through this 
and not knowing how they would take you. Because remember, you're losing, you're losing a sense of yourself as a woman. And so it's very terrifying to, to think what are they thinking about. Um, even to the point of my, my partner still finds me desirable or not. Those things go through your head. So knowing that um, they're there, they may not also understand any of this. But because they love you, they care for you, your children, your family, you know, your partner, um, it, it eases your mind. Shore has learned to look at menopause in a different way than the popular narrative. Her focus is on maintaining her mental health, and she embraces all the changes rather than resisting them. I think if people would look at it as it's a passage in life and is one of the changes you're going through, uh, the acceptance, and then really watch for the mental health. I wish there was more system of rather than giving you hormones and trying to balance your maybe that's why they do that because of your mental health uh, because if it for some people if they don't have the support system and go through this alone um, it can be uh, quite devastating you know if they're not prepared for it um, I, I find there was more support for the mental health and the part that it's okay you know it's okay to not feel okay for a, maybe a couple of years um i know for some women probably is a lot longer but it's okay um you get through it um it's just the passage you know rather than okay that's it that's the end of your womanhood uh, you're nothing after this is you know it's the end of your life um and after this we don't consider you a woman anymore um I, that's not true So on this episode, we heard about the unique relationships that people have with their own hormones. We learned that to tame your own hormone monster, we need support and understanding. This is especially true considering that our relationships with our hormones change over the course of our lives. From the beauty and difficulty of gender transition, to frustrating struggles with periods and hormone disorders, to inevitable menopause, each unique topic brings more perspective. When we validate everyone's unique experiences, we normalize the role that hormones play in our physical and mental health. This episode of Taking Up Space was produced by Sarah Solomon with help from Serena Bandar, Amy Attis, Char Johnston-Carter, and Katie Denslow. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests. Lux Welsh, Sarah Solomon, Tasha Damiant, and Shoray Hadian. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like what you hear, 
please like, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tune in next week. episode of taking up space is sponsored by jackson's ice cream swing down to jackson's ice cream at fisherman's wharf open every day from 11 a.m till dark walk the docks and enjoy scooped ice cream cones soft serve sundaes and milkshakes along the sunny harbor check them out on instagram at jackson's ice cream hey give me your ear let's uh Let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFUV's podcasts. Hi, this is Serena with CFUV 101.9 FM. I just wanted to share with you how wonderful a time I've had this past year being a volunteer working on CFUV's Taking Up Space podcast. Um, I find that uh, narrative uh, podcasts are such a great space for sharing the voices of marginalized folks and communities. Um, in particular, working on the Hormone Monster podcast was such an amazing experience. And not only did I get to share some really enthralling and eye-opening uh, information with you all, um, I also learned quite a bit about my own body and you know, the ways that uh, our hormones really just play around with uh, how we interact with the world. Uh, that episode was so eye-opening and so validating for me, especially as a transgender woman. Um, beyond that, um, yeah, I just found that working on these podcasts was such a really cool experience. Um, I learned so many skills that I'm able to now apply into my own artistic practice. Um, and yeah, it, I really can't really can't say enough about how great an experience it's been. Um, if you're interested at all in volunteering, I would highly recommend uh, getting in touch with the folks here at CPB. Thanks. If you like this episode, you might like You in the Ring's investigative episode on the mental health services at UVic called Take the Break.